This is the Incubator Podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Incubator Podcast. I'm Jeannie Garbarino. I'm Chris Walker. And now it's time for Physics with Phil. Phil is a graduate student here at the Rockefeller University. Uh, that's right. Today, uh, I'm going to talk about purely a, a physics problem, um, not, not something biology related, but um, a case again of where I think a seemingly esoteric problem in physics um, ends up being connected to all sorts of other, other interesting things. And uh, the way I was introduced to this subject was uh, a few years ago, I was working on, on this problem, physics problem, and the problem was to compute the entropy associated with a boundary in, in a very cold quantum mechanical material. And this uh, turns out to be a really interesting topic in theoretical physics. So people are interested in, in materials where quantum behavior is important. So superconductors, um, which I mentioned last time, are an example of this, or um, very small circuits you know, where the behavior of individual electrons matters are another example. Um, so this is a pretty active area of research in theoretical physics. And uh, you know, I don't want to go into a ton of detail about this particular problem, but I can give you sort of a simple example of the, of the flavor of what I was trying to do. So the simplest example of one of these models that physicists work with is called the Ising model, okay? And the Ising model started off as a model of a magnet. So in a magnet, there's lots of atoms, and each one is like a little tiny magnet that could be pointed up or down, for example. Okay, And if all of them are pointed in the same direction, then you get a material that's macroscopically magnetic. And the, the individual magnets or spins want to line up with one another because magnets always wanted to be pointed in the same direction. But, you know, there could be at high temperatures lots of sort of randomness in the system. And in that case, they'll tend to point in random directions. And this is actually sort of the simplest example of a phase transition in physics, where as you lower the temperature all of the spins will eventually tend to point in the same direction. And, uh, you know, those of you who were listening last time won't be surprised to find out that it turns out the only thing that really matters uh, in, in the, describing the properties of these phase transitions is sort of the symmetry properties of the problem. So it turns out that the phase transition, the easing model, is really the same as the liquid gas phase transition and, and lots of other applications. Okay, but what I was working on was sort of a quantum mechanical version of this and in that case, you rather than dealing with sort of discrete objects, you describe the model in terms of a continuous field. And your boundary will be sort of a point where the field goes from positive to negative, say. And we wanted to calculate the entropy associated with this boundary. Okay, so what do I mean by that? Usually you hear that entropy is like a measurement of disorder. But what it really is is a measurement of the number of possible states that a system could take given some set of constraints. Um, so in the case of sort of thermodynamics, where you're talking about gases, these constraints would be like volume and pressure and temperature. Um, and in the case of this model, the constraint is that there be a boundary in a particular spot. So the problem that we wanted to solve was, you know, what are the number of different possible solutions to this model contingent on the presence of a boundary with a certain shape? So it turns out that early research on this type of question was actually done by a professor at Rockefeller named Mark Kotz. Uh, he's a Polish mathematician who was at Rockefeller from the 60s until the 80s. 
and he wrote a famous paper called Can One Hear the Shape of a Drum? And the question that he wanted to ask is, if you hear the vibrations of, of a drum, of some two-dimensional object, can you, can you from that reliably infer the shape of the object? And so, you know, this is actually exactly the same problem, the problem of solving some wave equation on a, on a surface with a particular shape. And, you know, another simple example would be a, a string, right? So you know that you can hear the shape of a string from its vibrations because it's a guitar, right? If I pluck a, a string of a certain length, it vibrates at certain frequencies. And if I'm, you know, putting my finger on the, um, the frets of the guitar, then I change the length of the string and I, and I change the frequency of its vibration. So that's a really simple example, and it turns out that uh, it's much more difficult to answer the question for the case of a two-dimensional surface. And all that Kotz was able to show in his original paper was that you can hear the area of the drum and you can hear the length of the perimeter of the drum. But it took many years before anyone could figure out how much you can actually determine about, about the shape of the drum. And it turns out that you can't hear the shape of a drum and that it's possible, it was proven in 1992, that it's possible to come up with two different drum shapes that will vibrate with exactly the same frequencies but look different to the eye. And this was actually also proven using symmetry. Um, you know, so, so someone found symmetry transformations that would leave the spectrum of available vibrations unchanged but that changed the shape. Um, and that's how the problem was eventually solved. But it turned out for, for this quantum mechanical problem that in practice you can hear the shape of a drum because what we were interested in was not some particular shape but you know the presence of a, a boundary in this model like the Ising model which turns out to basically be a random object, right? So, so these spins are sort of randomly pointed up and down and the boundary between a, a group of spins that are pointed up and a group of spins that are pointed down can sort of go in different directions. And it turns out that in practice, it's like a type of random walk. And, and it's rough. So, you know, it's, it moves around randomly on lots of different scales. And in fact, it's kind of like a fractal. Okay, so what we were actually interested in is can you hear the fractal dimension of the boundary of the drum? And it turns out that the answer to that is yes. And there's this whole theory of the sort of spectral properties of, of rough surfaces. Um, and they turned out to, it turns out that it's useful for solving these problems about quantum mechanics, but it's also useful for lots of other stuff. So people make these fractal antennas where the antenna, you know, has structure on both large and small scales. And it turns out that it's very good for picking up wide bands of frequencies because of the small scale part of the antenna will pick up the high frequencies and the large scale parts will pick up the lower frequencies. Um, and so actually like it's useful in cell phones that need to be able to pick up frequencies of different types of signals, um, but with a single compact antenna. So this, this problem um, that a Rockefeller professor wrote about, about drums that's you know amusing, but seemingly not very important, turns out to be useful for a, a whole wide array of different stuff. What are the applications beyond, you know, what type of, of things can this be applied to, this technology? I mean, the quantum mechanical problem, to, the people that I was working with were interested in it for essentially purely theoretical reasons. Um, but it's, it, it is a problem that has practical applications. So actually someone 
relatively recently did an experiment on this exact problem of whether how the shape of a of a quantum system affects the available frequency of vibrations and this could be quite important for designing like microcircuitry so now computer circuits um, and circuit boards are getting so small that the behavior of the circuitry is no longer governed by classical physics and it turns out to be important to think of it as a quantum system and and the number of electrons you know that are actually moving around in the circuit is is literally in the hundreds of electrons um, and in this case quantum mechanics is important and it actually so th- so these guys did an experiment where they they made little tiny resonating superconducting circuits on a circuit board and they actually showed that you can make circuits of different shapes that have the same frequency spectrum which is sort of an experimental proof of this principle that you can't hear the shape of a drum and that could actually be really important for designing circuits because you know you might want uh, a circuit element that has a certain functional properties when current or a voltage is applied to it and it needs to fit in to some particular tiny little space on your board and the fact that you know we now understand how to manipulate the shapes of these things while maintaining a certain functional properties could actually be pretty useful and you know this is like one of the the sort of frontiers in in miniaturization of electronics is to try to start building circuits that are fundamentally quantum mechanical and and you know so tiny that there are literally just a few dozen electrons moving around you know doing your computing functions so that's one application that is probably pretty far away, but, you know, in principle could be important. Another thing that, that sort of, um, for me, I've always heard and, you know, everybody who's ever taught the concept of entropy to me have always defined it as, you know, moving towards chaos. So is that not accurate? Uh, that, that is accurate. So I said that entropy is defined as the number of states available to some system. Okay, so let me give you an example, right? I mean, we're sitting in this room, and there's air molecules moving all around. And, you know, mechanically speaking, there's no reason that the air molecules shouldn't all just fly over to the other half of the room, and we would all suffocate, right? And the reason that they don't do that, or, you know, the way that thermodynamics explains that they won't do that is that they should maximize their entropy, Um, which you can think of as them maximizing their chaos or their disorder, but what it really means is they're maximizing the number of states available to the system. So, you know, if you have a box and there's 100 particles in the box and they could be in any position, then there are much fewer positions available to the particles if you say they all have to be in one half of the room than if they can fill up both halves. And it turns out that even for a small box with like 100 particles in it, the difference between the number of states available in those two situations is so big that the amount of time you would have to wait for all the particles to randomly fly into one half of the room is much longer than the age of the universe. And so that's why we don't have to worry about suffocating because all the air particles will move to one half of the room. And that's basically what entropy is. Um, It's a way of sort of predicting how a system, a random system will behave um, by arguing that it should always remain in a highly probable state, basically. You know, and it turns out you can use that to describe all sorts of things. Um, any, any situation where you sort of can observe some external properties of a system and not some internal properties, you can try to predict how it's going to act by saying that it should maximize its entropy. Is it, like, weird to ask if there's a force governing entropy? Um, 
No. Because I, I, um, I mean, I, I, it's so it's such a concept that's very no you can actually think of there are many cases where you can think of entropy as being like a force um i mean that's actually kind of what thermodynamics is all about right is is connecting these sort of statistical forces that come from randomness to sort of macroscopic forces like pushing down on a piston or something like that an example is dna so people actually measure people that are interested in this in the structural properties of dna uh measure stretching forces so you take a DNA molecule and you pin it uh, to a surface on one end, and on the other end you have a, a magnetic bead that you can move around with a laser, and you pull on the DNA molecule. And DNA molecules are very floppy until they've been completely pulled straight. So there's no actual physical force from the molecular bonds that's resisting the pulling of the DNA molecule. But there is what you can think of as an entropic force. Okay, so you can imagine if the DNA molecule is completely stretched out, there's only one state available to it. But if it's only partially stretched out, then it can sort of wiggle around and it's floppy. Um, and so there's actually a physical force that you can measure associated with the stretching out of the DNA molecule that only comes from the fact that you're reducing the available space of states of the of the polymer that's sort of wiggling around. So yeah, you, you, you can think of it as a force and you can actually measure cases where it acts exactly like a force. Um, Is it possible to consider a single particle in two different or more states at any given time? Yeah, that's sort of... Um, the basis of quantum mechanics, I guess, is, you know, that things can occupy multiple different states. Um, and, and you know, the entropy in this problem that I was talking about earlier is a quantum mechanical entropy, not a thermal entropy. So this whole, uh, I mean, part of the reason people are interested in, in these quantum materials that have interesting quantum mechanical behavior is that you get these sort of all of these concepts from statistical mechanics like entropy that are associated with randomness that comes from there being random thermal energy carry over to quantum mechanics where, you know, just like we don't really know where the particles in, of air in the room are, you know, you don't know what the state of the electrons is in some quantum mechanical system. And so the concepts all carry over. And so the entropy that we're calculating there is like a quantum mechanical entropy, not a, a statistical entropy, strictly speaking. But they, they act similar. But they also act different in certain important ways. Um, and that's part of the reason that people are so interested in those types of problems is actually the ways that they're different. Incubator Podcast is supported by the Science Outreach Program at the Rockefeller University. Our producer is Tim Dennis. Our theme song is Springtime Jazz by Fool's Chaos. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.